Jesus said, this is eternal life, that we would know him. spoke to me saying that there's a generation that's consumed by power, but I'm going to consume a generation with my love. With my love. Where it's not going to be the first great awakening or the second great awakening, but the greatest awakening, says the Lord. One that will awaken the body so you won't fall back to sleep and do it slumber. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Consuming Love Ministries proudly presents wasn't just that in his name they cast out demons it wasn't that just in his name sickness runs and flees it's not just in his name that the oppressed are set free it's that there's no other name by which men are saved but the name of Jesus no other king left his throne yet Jesus left heaven's throne he stepped out of eternity and John 1 says that in the beginning the Word became flesh. The Word was with God, the Word was God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on the penalty and the punishment for sin. He conquered hell, death, and the grave. Making the way for all men to be free. Making the way for all men to be reconciled back to the Father. We worship you, God. We worship you, God. Oh, great and mighty King. There's none like you. There's none beside you. I will worship you. I will lift your name on high. For you are the rose of Sharon. You are the lily of the valleys. You are the great I am. You are the prince of peace. sin for me oh the power of the cross the power of the cross what Jesus did would have looked would have been looked at as weakness we said it last week on Palm Sunday that as Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding a colt, riding a donkey, that they were expecting a Maccabee warrior, 
They were expecting somebody to come in riding on a war horse, declaring war. And they wanted somebody who was going to save them from a temporal affliction. But Jesus was coming to save them from an eternal oppression, to make the way for all men to be free. And he came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve, and he laid down his life so that we can be reconciled to the Father and any other king, any other emperor, any other ruler of that time would have looked and viewed what Jesus did as weakness, but it was the true display of power and grace and mercy. And yet there's no other rival. Yet there's no other king that leaves his throne. Yet there's no other God. In all the gods that are created, God was not created. He in and of himself is God. He created all things. Before the foundations of the world, he knew you, he formed you, he fashioned you. Yet in other religions, and other gods, no other God left his throne. No other God gave his life for humanity except Jesus. How many are thankful for the cross this morning? How many are thankful for the resurrection power of Jesus? exalt you this morning. We thank you that you came and you died for us. That you conquered hell, death, and the grave, and on the third day that you resurrected. Paying once and for all the punishment for our sins, God. Paying the price so that man can be reconciled back to the Father communion and koinonia can be restored back. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your manifest presence in this room. We thank you for your glory, God. We say just increase your glory in this room, Lord. Increase your glory in this room, Lord. We exalt you this morning among the nations, God. You are worthy to be praised. If you never do anything else in our life, God, if we never see anything else, you are worthy because of what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary when you took on sin's place. We give you glory and the honor this morning. The church said, Amen. Amen. Y'all on, give it up for Jesus. Thank you. Just so thankful for the cross, so thankful for the fact that he's redeemed me, he's brought me back to life. You know, I was just getting to share my testimony with somebody at the gym this week. You know, this is part of doing what Jesus did is, is the empowerment to become, you know, we're, we, you don't have to walk in the fivefold grace or gifting of an evangelist to evangelize. The Bible says we're all called to the work of an evangelist. And sometimes when you don't have the words to say, just share your testimony. Just begin to share your testimony of what Jesus did because the Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I believe it declares what he does for one, he'll do for another. And so testimony breeds testimony. You don't know what to say. Just begin to share your testimony out of darkness into light. What did Jesus do in your life? You know, and I was recounting on this testimony and just telling this, this guy, I'm just so thankful for the blood of Jesus and remembering all that he had brought me out of, all that he saved me from. 
He didn't leave me in my shame. He didn't leave me in the world. Amen. How many thank him for that? Amen. It's amazing just continuing to go through these scriptures even last week and just seeing how Jesus was constantly defying the norm. He was constantly challenging faults and mindsets. It's at Romans 12 too. When we come to him, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Jews thought he was coming to, coming on a war horse, yet he came in on a donkey. He came in on bringing forth peace. You know, he was constantly challenging how the religious leaders thought. Are you going to heal on the Sabbath? You know, and he was just always challenging the way that things always were. He was challenging the spirit of religion. He was challenging these things. And he was bringing forth the opposition of it. It was all around this, this self-seeking thing um, that, that the Jews thought he was there to save just them from a, from a temporal affliction. But he was there to save from an eternal oppression. He was there to save everybody. To make the way for all men to be free. For all men to enter into the presence of God by belief in Jesus. That if those who believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord, they would be sozo. They would be saved. And so I love it as I'm going through and just, you know, we, we, we read through these scriptures and the word's alive. You know, it doesn't just breathe one time, but the, the word is still alive. You can read the same scripture 40 times and get a new revelation every time. It's amazing. Uh, turn with me today to Mark 16, if you would. Mark 16. We're going to start with verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to stop and talk about it. Is everyone there? Amen. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We're going to stop right there. I love that part. And, and Peter. Tell, and Peter. Jesus knew that Peter during this time was probably facing a lot of guilt and shame. After just vigorously denying Jesus three times after he told Jesus, I won't deny you. And so he makes a point for him to go out and, and reach after Peter because he knew that Peter was needing that affirmation. He knew that Peter was needing that, that reach out. You know, and I typically don't, uh, I typically don't always succumb to preaching themed messages, meaning in theme and alignment with, with kind of the seasons and the holidays, but how many know that everything in the New Testament points to the resurrection? Without the resurrection, there's no remission of sins. Without the, without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no way to be born again. And everything in the New Testament points to the resurrection of Jesus. John's 
gospel and John's account of the same story looks it adds it adds another part I love you got to read them all and you got to read the different perspectives and see kind of their point of views and see their their foretelling of the story and Tony you'll like this but John's gospel talks about how John and Peter ran to the tomb and when they ran to the tomb it says that they that Jesus wasn't there and they saw an angel sitting at his at his feet an angel sitting at his head and in the middle there was the clothes and the clothes of Jesus were folded up onto they were folded up onto the uh, onto the stone there and where his face was where the napkin was over his face was also folded up now in Jewish custom of that day if you were to go to somebody's house in that day and you were to eat a meal with somebody what would happen is after that meal say this meal was the most disgusting meal you've ever had you would actually fold your napkin up in such a way that when the master of that house, when the person who made that meal went to clean up after you had left, they would see this napkin that was folded up on the dish and they would know to never serve you that dish again. They would know that you would never eat of that dish again. And so here is G, uh, John and Peter and they see, they come in and they see the clothes folded up on the middle and the napkin where Jesus' head was and it was folded up in such a way to signify that he will never eat of death again. That he will never taste of death and punishment again. That once and for all he conquered hell, death, and the grave. Come on, can we praise God for that? Come on. Am I the only one that gets excited about that? That he will never again taste of hell and the grave. The two angels facing each other inside the tomb remind me of the Ark of the Covenant where the two cherubims would face each other on the Ark and they would both face each other and in the middle of the Ark was the mercy seat. And inside the Ark, which is also the Ark of Testimony, was the tablets, right, the tablets of Moses which symbolized the law. There was also the jar of manna, which represented God's covenant of provision. And then you had the, the rod, the almond rod, which was dead, but now is alive. And it's blooming and it's blossoming. And it has buds and it has fresh almonds, which represents resurrection life. It also is marked by leadership. And all leadership is how he appoints leadership. It points to resurrection life. And so here we have the angels at the top and at the bottom of his bed, and in the middle where Jesus laid was the mercy seat. That through his infinite mercy, he came and took sin's place for us. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament wasn't a place that was symbol symbolic of the glory of God. It carried the manifest presence of God. It physically carried the tangible presence of God. That if you even got into proximity of the ark, you could feel the weight of God's glory. What we talked about before, the kabod, the weighty glory of God. You could literally feel it just by getting close in proximity to the ark of the covenant. It wasn't just symbolic. And so now, he makes an everlasting ark. And it's Jesus through the place of mercy that carries forth the glory of God. The eternal glory of God. And through that testimony, others are invited to eat of the testimony of his goodness.
and to step into an encounter with Jesus. When Jesus descends, Luke 16 describes it as two places. You have the place of torment and you have the place of comfort. This is where everybody went before Jesus died and resurrected. The place of comfort was Abraham's bosom. Abraham, we know, is the father of faith. Those who have faith in Jesus will inherit the promise, right? They, they were in Abraham's bosom until the time of his death and resurrection. It says that when he resurrected, that he ascended, he ascended through the heavens. It says that he went down into Abraham's bosom and he proclaimed the good news. He proclaimed that the price has been paid. And it says that they all gladly received him. And then he begins to bring them up. And on his way up, he sees Mary, Mary Magdalene, of whom he casted out seven devils. He sees her weeping at the tomb. How do I know that he stopped the procession? Because it says that, I think it's John's gospel, says that she was clinging to him. And he says, he says, don't cling to me for I have yet not, for I have not yet ascended. So here he is bringing them all up and he's moved by compassion, sees Mary Magdalene and stops and he goes over to, to comfort her. And she thinks he's the gardener. And, he's, and when he says Mary, her response is Rabboni, Rabboni. Because she rec recognizes that it's him and she begins to cling to his coat. She begins to cling to his presence. This might have been when they saw all the dead people rising and walking around. <laughs> walking around Jerusalem was when he, when he stopped the procession and went over to comfort Mary Magdalene. But I want to note on the power of, of, this, of this place here, the, the revelation that's in this passage. Jesus was the firstborn of a virgin. And the first person to cling to Jesus when he was born was the Virgin Mary. Jesus was also the firstborn among the dead. The first person to cling to him when he was born among the dead was Mary Magdalene, of whom he casted out seven devils. The first one recognized the ending of the law. The second one announced the initiation of the hour of grace. Mary the virgin represented the fulfillment and the abolishment of the law. Mary Magdalene represented the inauguration of the hour of grace. Is anyone getting a hold of this? This is good stuff. Let's keep on reading. Let's go back to verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he casted out seven demons. She went and told those that they had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and they had, and they had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the leaven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And who believes is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues. 
They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will not by any means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them in confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let's jump back to verse 10, I believe it is. She went and told them those things which had been with them as they mourned and wept. So here they are mourning over this. Mourning is typically comes and, and everyone kind of processes this differently and, and part of good intentions and good hearts. You know, sometimes we mourn because we feel like we're supposed to be strong through something. Other times we mourn because uh, the unbelief of something really good, something really bad happening to something, someone really good, that this should have never happened to them. And it says here it was mourning and they wept and they were in unbelief. See, mourning will cause two things. It will either cause you to be comforted or it will cause you to unbelief. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So mourning will either cause us to turn to the comforter or it will cause us to turn to unbelief. depending on which way we go, either brings forth resurrection life, deliverance, freedom, or begins to put us in a cycle of unbelief. I can't tell you how many people, I just got to preach the gospel to somebody at work, I told you guys the story, who had lost a baby full term, and they were a youth pastor in a church, and now they completely described it to me as deconstruction of the faith, where they were walking away from the Lord because of circumstances and situations in their life, because mourning brought them to unbelief. Come on, I'm talking to somebody today. Are we awake? Come on. Thank you, Lord. If we allow it to turn us to the comforter, it will actually bring us into a divine encounter where we become equipped to be able to handle and bring forth liberation and restoration to another. Let's continue on reading. And after that, he appeared in another form. The two of them, as they walked in and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, I love this, it's, he, he instantly rebukes them and then commissions them. <laughs> there's, there's no deliberation in between the rebuke and the commissioning, but he just rebukes them for their unbelief. And then the next passage says, go. You know, I mean, what, what a reconciliation of the Lord. What, what a God that's quick to mercy. How many people want somebody to sit down for 10 months, 10 years, and want to walk them through something and, never, and say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. You know, and they hold this harbor, they harbor onto something. Jesus was quick. I mean, in John 21, he sees Peter after Peter denied him, and he's like, go, feed my lambs. You know, here's the redemption of the cross. This is the restoration power of Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. The signs follow what? 
Those who believe. We don't chase signs and wonders. Signs and wonders follow those who believe. It's part of the believer's authority. It's part of our inheritance as believers in Jesus. Is the signs and wonders follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. In my name they will speak with new tongues. For they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. This is not what we've turned it into by handling snakes. This is what the scripture meant when, 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 when Paul is walking on the island of, of, of Malta, and he reaches into the fire and gets bit by a snake doing the work of the Lord, and it actually brings forth the testimony for all to believe because they knew how deadly that snake was, that he should have been dead. They actually says that they waited for him to die. But in the end, they saw the testimony of Jesus come forth when he lived and didn't die. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. That's a sign and wonder. And then they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them in confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So the whole New Testament is for, points to the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there's no remission of sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, and what's crazy is we know the blood actually speaks forth the remissions of, the sin, of sins, but it's the resurrection of Jesus that testifies and confirms that. It seals it, right? And so the whole New Testament points to the resurrection power of God, the resurrection power of Jesus, that he came, he died. Without this, there's no gospel. Without him coming and dying and taking on sin's place and dying for us and resurrecting from the grave, there is no gospel. There's no way for men to enter into heaven. This had to happen. This had to happen. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Before this, if goats and sacrifices could have done it, Jesus would have never had to come. They described the goats as the atonement of sin, but yet it wasn't the atonement of sin because it couldn't truly take away the sins of the world. There was only one who could take away the sins of the world. It was Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who conquered hell, death, and the grave. And Hebrews 4 says that he ascended through the heavens dismantling powers and principalities and rulers of wickedness in high places. Now he is seated with God at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3 says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We have got to grab a hold of this church that the gospel is so much beyond just a self-pleasing gospel of woe is me and everything going right and wrong in my life. No, what makes the gospel, what makes him worthy is what he did on the cross of Calvary when he died and took on my place. That if God never does another thing for me, if I never see another miracle, if I never see another sign, if I never see another wonder, if I never see everything in my life going right, I know that there's one found worthy. His name is Jesus. His name is Yeshua the Christ. Where else can I go? Who else has the words of eternal life? There is one. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And his goodness isn't dependent on my circumstances. His goodness isn't dependent on everything going right and wrong. His, his goodness is determined 2,000 years ago when he died. That's what made him worthy. That's what made him worthy to be praised. And now the result and the byproduct of knowing him and the byproduct of communion with his presence is we begin to become like him. And we begin to see the, the display of his glory on the earth. That the glory of God would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. But what God is doing is he's looking for people who will walk in the resurrection power of Jesus. That Paul said, I did not come in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. There's a, there's a lot of amazing preachers, but if good preaching would have saved us, if good words would have saved us, the world would have been saved long ago. The world is groaning for the manifestations of the sons of men. The world is looking for people who will grab a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection power of the cross because to preach a gospel that doesn't preach the resurrection, that doesn't preach the power, that doesn't preach raising from the dead, that doesn't preach deliverance to the demons, that doesn't preach that is a gospel that denies the resurrection of Jesus. We need resurrection power. 
It's the power of God unto salvation. That the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead has quickened our mortal bodies. He lives inside of us. And now you become an ambassador of the glory of God. You become an ambassador of Christ to now become what he, what he paid the price for towards men. That people would see your good works and they would glorify your Father which is in heaven. And now we're no longer walking around void of power, in depression, ups and downs, an emotional roller coaster. No, Jesus paid the price for all of that when he cries out on the cross. And the most powerful prayer in history isn't even uttered with words. It's when Jesus is suspended between the heavens and he cries out to Telestai, which meant it is finished. It was a tax term that when, the, when they did their taxes, they would put the stamp on there, to Telestai, meaning it was paid in full. It was paid in full. And now through him all men might be free. Free from what? Hell? That's one part of it. Free from oppression. Free from affliction. Free to walk in everything that Jesus paid the price for. Look, there's people that are depending on us to get this thing right. There's a world out there right now that's dying and doesn't even know it. There's a world out there right now that's dying and doesn't know Jesus. Everything in the New Testament is about the resurrection of Jesus. It all points to his resurrection. And now... As a result, the byproduct is signs by all those who believe. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. I can't say it enough. What was lost with Koinonia was communion with the presence of God. This is all reconciled back through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now from the place of communion, we begin to look like, we begin to look like him. We begin to look like him. The Bible says there's a lot that have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Which means we can preach a good message, but if there's no power, we can preach a good message, but if there's no resurrection power, we have a form of godliness, but not I, the power thereof. Everything he touches comes to life. Jesus didn't heal everybody, but every person he prayed for was healed. What do I mean by that? He walked by people that weren't healed, but every person that Jesus encountered, encountered life. Every person he prayed for was healed, delivered, set free by the power of God. And then he said, greater works than I did, you'll do. In my name, you'll cast out demons. In my name, you'll heal the sick. In my name, you'll raise the dead. This is part of the power, the power of the resurrection is to become what, real, what, what, what the Christian life is about. And it doesn't mean that you're free from afflictions. meaning free from that afflictions don't come or that trials don't come or tribulations don't come. It means that Jesus Christ becomes the hope of glory in your life. He becomes the anchor of your soul, which means I'm no longer dictated by the, way, by the winds and the waves because I'm anchored in him. It means my hope's in him. I have an eternal hope. I say this about martyrs. People say, I don't know how they could go to the stake to be burned. But what we don't understand is they were dead already. A martyr was dead before they ever made it to the stake to be burned. Jesus was dead before he ever made it to the cross. Those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. But those who find their life will lose it. When we lose our life to become everything that Jesus paid the price for, 
when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. One thing I learned about a crucifixion, crucifixion hurts, but if you leave it on the cross, it'll die. If we leave it on the cross, it'll die. We're being conformed deeper into the image of the Son of God. This is part of a daily walk with his presence. This is why communion is so important. This is why it's not just out of religious deed and religious habit. It's falling in love with Jesus. When you fall in love with Jesus, reading this becomes easy. When you fall in love with Jesus, this isn't habit. It's not obligation. It's not, let me, and it's not that, not that study tools are, are, are bad. Study tools are great. And we'll read the Bible in a year. All those things are great. And it comes out of a place of obedience. What, my, what my, I'm saying in this, hear my heart right, is that if we just do this out of religious habit or obligation, but we haven't come to the place of the essence of love, of falling in love with Jesus, and realize that I do this to know him. I don't read my Bible to preach a sermon. I read my Bible to know him. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I read my Bible to know him. Because it's through knowing him, I know his people clearly. It's through knowing him that I can see humanity through the lens of the cross and realize that everybody was worthy of the blood of Jesus. The Bible says that when you behold the lamb, you're taken from glory to glory to glory. What happens when we don't behold the lamb? You look like the one you behold. And so when we embrace the cross of Calvary, and we step into communion with his presence, and we live for the secret place, that place where he talks about go into the inner place, shut the door when nobody's looking, that's the place I'm talking about. The place where it's just you and God. It's good. Corporate prayer is good. We're going we're gonna to continue to press into corporate prayer because I believe things break in that place. But my, my honestly, my, if God didn't call me to be up here, I'd be there 100% of the time. Trust me. Because I live for the secret place. And a private kiss always leads to a public touch. A private kiss always leads to a public touch. You don't get pregnant by holding hands. Pregnancy and birthing something can only come, into, come from the secret place of his presence. And when we get into the place of the presence of God, there's a place, there's something that happens by way of divine exchange in the presence of God, in the incubation bed of intimacy. Something begins to be born. Something begins to be transformed. And there's a message that God begins to birth out of you. There's a dream that God begins to birth in you. There's a seed of promise God begins to birth in you. There's a redemption God begins to birth in you. What would happen when we became so fulfilled in him? That we realize as Christians we're no longer warring towards victory, we're warring from victory. One of the greatest lies of the enemy is to get, make you live your whole life trying to attain something that was already paid for on the cross. Meaning this, you live your whole life thinking that I'm living from here to heaven, that God is some distant father. But yet he says he's near all that call upon the name of the Lord. That if two or more gather in my name, I'll be there in the midst. He's very present. He's very present. He's here. He's here. He can manifest himself in a, in a number of ways. We can hear him audibly. We can hear him tangibly. We can hear him through one another. We can feel the tangible presence and glory of God. The kabod of God rests upon a room. We felt it in this room many times. But he's very alive and he's very real and he's here. And I don't fight towards victory. I fight from victory. Colossians 3, being seated with him in heavenly places, realizing the battle has already been won. 
So now I'm not speaking, you know, now I'm speaking to fear. I'm speaking to anxiety. I'm speaking to the situation, the circumstances around me and commanding the world around me to, to align with the kingdom within me. Matthew 18, 18, bound on earth that's bound in heaven, loose on earth that's loose in heaven. Those things that are not as though they are. And now I'm not giving credence in life to something he called dead. I'm not giving life and credence to what's going on around me, the circumstances going on around me, meaning this. My kids are coming around. They're continuing on in the world. And I just, that, that kid did it again. He's just never going to change. Right? Life and death are in our tongue. Let no idle word come forth from your mouth. Ezekiel 37, comes a valley of dry bones, can these bones live again? Why are you asking me, you prophesy, son of man? You speak from the north, the wind, the, that you speak and declare the winds would come from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They would fill Israel's army. Israel's army would come alive. You begin to speak, and you realize the power of communion. You realize the power of community. You realize the power of what Jesus came to establish, that whatever you speak, whatever you decree, so it shall be. And now I begin to watch my words because I'm conscious of that, and I believe in the power of the tongue, and I believe in the power of the resurrection, that there's truly resurrection power living inside of me. And now I don't let just idle words come forth from my mouth. And now I'm speaking life to my circumstance. Father, I thank you, Lord, that my son's changing, God. I thank you that you're grabbing a hold of his heart. I thank you for fresh encounter in the nighttime hour. God, I thank you, Lord, that this might, this isn't, that his life and his destiny is not what it looks like in this moment. God, I thank you, Lord, that the steps of a good man are ordained in order by the Lord. That man makes their plans, but God sits in heaven and laughs. And you begin to partner through the key of thanksgiving. Psalms 100 verse 4, I enter his gates with thanksgiving. I enter his courts with praise. And now the declaration over his life begins to agree with the kingdom of God. Because whatever kingdom we're most aware of is the kingdom we're manifest. And when we, be, we can begin to partner with the, with, the, with, the, with the accuser of the brethren, right, because that's what Satan is, and we can begin to speak accusation against them, where we can begin to partner with heaven and decree what heaven says over their life, that you are loved, you are called, you are chosen. And I don't even have to think about it. Now it's an automatic response. This is the resurrection power of Jesus is that everything in our lives begin to align with what heaven's saying. And that you would release the kingdom everywhere you go. So now when you're at work and somebody's depressed and they're having a bad day, you can rise up quickly and begin to encourage them in the Lord. That's not what God says about you. I was at the gym the other day. I heard somebody saying something. I had to turn around and say, man, that's not what God says about you. This is who he is. He loves you. He's called you. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for your life. Before you were ever born in your mother's womb, he knew you. Let me take you to the word. Let me show you where it says that. Come on. You have a hope inside of you, a hope the world's looking for. It's Jesus. He's the answer to everything. The answer to every problem you got going around you is Jesus. The answer to the wars in the world right now is Jesus. He's the hope. Is anyone getting any, anything out of this this morning? I know it can seem like I'm preaching at you sometimes, but I get fired up about this stuff. I know what he paid the price for. I know for this house will be a house of miracles. This house will be a house of signs and wonders. This house will be a house that looks like him. Because I believe the world's looking. 
I believe that there's people around us that are looking at us right now. You might not even realize it, but I'm telling you, there's other churches that are looking to us right now. There's other people in the region, the saved and the unsaved, that are looking to us, that are looking to Trinity. How will we respond when he comes?